I'm Will Harris, and today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Patches. Good afternoon and welcome to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and this morning we're talking about meat. We're talking about the cattle industry specifically, and it is my very great pleasure to introduce to my listening audience uh, Mr. Raul Baxter, who is an industry insider. This is a guy who's had over 30 years of experience in the commercial livestock industry. He worked um, first with Sarah Lee when they were doing meat, then with John Morell, and more lately of Smithfield, where he developed their international uh, endeavors, uh, helping them to acquire companies in China, Mexico, Romania, and Poland. And he now now runs a consulting group for the cattle industry called RJB Worldwide. He is the man with the answers, and I know that's true. Welcome to the show, Raul. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your Father's Day today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, so the reason I, I contacted you, know, I read you all the time in MeetingPlace.com, which is a fantastic publication for anybody who is interested in learning what's going on uh, in the livestock industry in almost every um, aspect of it. Um, and you wrote an editorial recently about uh, the need for transparency in the cattle industry, which is something that comes up, um, you know, kind of regularly, and uh, and yet somehow your colleagues don't quite seem to get the message. What what prompted you to write it this time, write about this this time, and what do you mean when you say transparency? Well, I think that uh, what applies to beef applies to pork and, and chicken and turkey, everything in the, mm-hmm. in the meat world. And I think that, um, you know, as people have gone through the famous pink slime uh, publicity that, uh, you know, they tend to get kind of defensive about what actually happens or takes place with both raising livestock and in the uh, the meat industry. And right. I think things need to be just a little bit more straightforward. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that, uh, you know, for instance, with the pink slime thing, I mean, it was it was obvious that there was nothing dangerous about it. It's just that the, the, the industry didn't seem to get out ahead of the media stories that, you know, categorized it as this, you know, dreadful thing. Now, it's not something I personally want to eat, but it's clearly not dangerous. And um, I felt that, you know, they could have done a lot better job of, of getting on top of that story, and I'm sure you did, too. Um, one of the things that uh, you and I share an acquaintance or at least a, or a friendship in your case with uh, Temple Grandin and one of the things she's stressed to me on several occasions is the need for a third party audited live video stream which seems like a very easy way to manage that quote unquote transparency in the industry but you let me know that you didn't think it was such a great idea what, what do you think is wrong with that idea and don't you think it would help your public relations a lot I, you know, I've known Temple uh, for a long time, and mm-hmm. I consider her obviously not only an expert, but somebody that's very, very practical. Yeah. Uh, my objection with things like these videos is is who is going to be doing the auditing? Mm-hmm. When you talk about third party, I mean, if it's going to be people about like the USDA, FSIS, who are trained to actually be able to look at things, that's one thing. But to have third parties that have 
uh, different agendas, I think it's kind of ridiculous. Well, I don't think anybody would suggest that it would be the Humane Society of the United States, for example. But I mean, surely there are other companies that could be trained for, you know, to spot um, infractions, whether it's animal handling protocols or safety protocols that are not necessarily desirable. Um, it doesn't seem to me that that would be so terribly hard to train a third party in doing. And you don't well, feel that Katie, way? Katie, you know, the, the meat industry is the most regulated, most inspected industry in the entire world. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have basically 24-hour uh, USDA inspectors in those plants. You have veterinarians. For example, every animal that goes through a USDA-inspected uh, plant uh, basically has an autopsy. Yeah. And every single animal from the time it's unloaded off a truck until it ends up in a, in a meat cooler mm-hmm. is uh, uh, observed by n- numbers of people. I mean, if you look at the rest of the food industry, nobody else is inspected. No. Nobody has this kind of inspection. So you're going to do what? I mean, if, if people can't control what goes on now, then we really are in trouble. Well, I, I, you know, you have to worry a little bit about some because some of the meat pants plants are so big. I mean, even a company like Cargill, which I think probably rates number one in terms of the infrastructure that they have for uh, maintaining safety and animal welfare protocols, even they have been subject, for example, last summer to that gigantic uh, turkey recall that was, you know, enormously expensive for them, um, and uh, they managed to contain it from a public relations point of view. But uh, surely. Um, you know, there was there's some other uh, intervention that might have prevented something like that. I mean, unfortunately for you guys, there seems like there's more and more uh, press around these, you know, giant um, recalls. And uh, and I think that's where where that third party auditing thing would at least lend some sense of of uh, consumer involvement or something, some way of making people feel more secure about their food. I mean, I'm not saying you guys aren't doing what you're doing. I'm just saying that there's got to be something else, some other intervention that's not maybe not happening right now. What do you think about that? I, you know, number one, it's uh, it's extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. I, uh, again, as you look at all of the uh, the programs that go on, the, the the different groups from the USA FSIS. I mean, it seems like you're having a government convention in each plant <laughs> in each plant every day. And so the question becomes, you know, how much information do you need to make a decision? And a lot of these things that involve recalls, you know, happen after the fact and uh, very, very difficult to be able to control that kind of thing. Plus, you know, most of the publicity about uh, that have involved uh, animals have have come from the farm level. And, uh, you know, I think that is where some of these things have really, really gotten out of control because... Uh, to me, when when people are using these types of films to get people fired, to get people removed from their jobs, to get criminal penalties, they need to go under the same pressure that everybody else does that creates a charge against somebody. They need to be under the gun. They need to be cross-examined. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I feel very strongly about that type of thing. Right. I, I can certainly understand why you would. I'm going to roll that back for just for a second, though, because I don't understand what you mean when you say it happens at the farm level. Um, are you saying that there should be more interventions from the, from the farm to the cow, like you're saying from the cow-calf to the stalker, from the stalker to the packer, which is sort of the typical route for a commercial cattle? Where, where do you feel like that part of the chain no, is not no, working I, I the way don't, it should? I, I think, frankly, that uh, 99.9% of the livestock people 
do a great job, and they do a great job because handling animals properly means that they're going to get more money for what they sell. Sure. And in turn, you know, because humanity and good business go hand in hand. Absolutely. You just absolutely cannot mistreat. It's impossible to mistreat animals and somehow make money. Yeah. And that's very, very true in the plant. I mean, we first met Temple Grandin in, in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Because we had an old uh, uh, stockyards that we bought that was impossible to move animals. And the whole focus of our part, because we were basically a processor, was to improve the quality of meat by improving the handling of the animals. Sure. Well, isn't it a fact that when animals, when cattle, for instance, are stressed, uh, they release a lot of cortisol into their, into their muscle, and that in turn makes the meat very dark, and sometimes it doesn't even pass inspection when that happens. Isn't that true? Or it, am I it overstating that? It, it, you know, the famous dark cutters right. are really not very common. With pigs, though, you have very common to have something called PSE, mm-hmm. pale, soft, exudative, or stress meat. Very common. Right, right. Ooh, stress meat. I like that term. Thank you for introducing me to that. I'm going to start dropping it into all of my conversations. Um, let's um, let's move on quickly to the um, to another big aspect of the livestock industry. I'm so excited to have somebody like you on the phone that I'm just like, oh my god, there's just so many questions. Um, but one of the things that uh, has been a very political um, issue around uh, the the livestock industry in general, but cattle in particular, is the the competition for energy uh, with with crops like corn and soy. And of course, that's shot the prices way up and it's had a big impact on the livestock industry. Um, what in the cattle industry, when you are you are you guys working on new production models that would either change what uh, the cows are eating? Um, are you finding the wet distillers grain that's that is a byproduct of ethanol, a satisfactory feed? Or do you feel like there's more that needs to be done in that in that regard in terms of changing up that model a little bit to help deal with those fluctuating prices? I, I think there is just a, a tremendous amount that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and cattle is very difficult. Number one, you have, uh, what, at least 80 breeds that are active. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you can live with uh, variability <clears throat> as long as you have some predictability about what you're going to get. But there's so much unpredictability from the various paths and various avenues that cattle follow from the time they're born, wherever they're born, to the time they finally hit a plant. And the reality in America is that um, what makes American beef unique to the world is fed beef. And, uh, yes, there's attributes. And, and, you know, my feeling is people want to sell grass-fed beef or, or whatever they want to do. That's fine as long as they are able to make money doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, I, can't, I have to admit, I've been involved in all phases of livestock and agriculture, and I cannot think of anything more difficult than trying to make money with cattle and particularly with feeding. Yeah, so when you talk about fed cattle, you're talking about animals that go into a feedlot and get finished on corn, um, DDGS, and, you know, whatever else. Alpha, no, not alfalfa. I guess it's just really right. primarily grain, corn grains, and grain. Different yeah, grains. Yeah, and the distiller's mash, of course. Right. Um, I mean, if you look at the rest of the world, Australia, New Zealand, Brazil, it's, it's all grass-fed beef. And, mm-hmm. you know, with the dramatic increases in property values in this country, uh, you know, even though most of it has been in... Uh, like uh, corn or soybean producing ground, that still in turn uh, increases the value of pasture land. 
And, sure. uh, you know, you don't, you don't raise cows for free on grass. No. In fact, I think that it's the most difficult thing you can do is to make money feeding cattle on grass. Well, I think if you have a smaller size herd and, you know, you change it up with other livestock and you have a more kind of complete um, circle, as you were, sort of a closed loop, it's, it's probably a little easier. But I don't see it. It certainly could not happen on the scale that we currently feed cattle in a, in a, in a feeding yard. Um, that would never happen, and that would mean that the price of, of beef in the market would go way up, right? If we fed everything I, on grass. I mean, I mean, the whole reason beef is cheap as, as cheap as it is, and so much cheaper than grass-fed, is because they're eating grains and corn, and that brings them to market a lot faster. Yeah, I, th- I think on that aspect, you're, you're probably right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, thank you. I appreciate that from somebody who's been in the... <laughs> I like to be validated. It makes me feel better. Well, I mean, the, the, let's face it. If you're if you're going to try to make money feeding cattle on grass, I mean, uh, you know, it's probably going to take you at least three, probably four years to get an animal up to some reasonable, not only some reasonable weight, but to the point where it can produce uh, meat that somebody wants to buy. With fed cattle, I mean, they all start out on grass, and then they go various paths from the time they leave the cow-calf guy until they get into a feedlot. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's a compressed time uh, to be fed grain. I mean, a lot of the criticism on grain is just the, I, I think there's so many people that just have a fantasy built up about big people. Um, I, you know, to a certain extent, I agree with you. I mean, I, um, I think there are some, there are feed yards and there are feed yards. Some are obviously better than others. And I, I'm sure you would not dispute that. Um, and I think it's also unreasonable to think that we are ever going to have enough at this point, we will not have enough pasture to feed the amount of cattle needed to meet the demands worldwide. Because as you say, we, um, not only do we export beef, but we import beef because we love beef so much in this country. <laughs> I mean, we are the hamburger nation, right? Yeah, so, well, I, I think fortunately for cattle people, um, you know, the important thing with beef is it tastes good because by definition it's expensive relative to every other protein. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Now, with the with the change in, possible change in subsidies in the farm bill, do you anticipate that beef will become more expensive or... You know, if they take those uh, subsidies away for corn and soy, will that drive the price up even more? Uh, how much does drought figure into that? What do you think it's going to, can you give us a prediction over the next year or 18 months about how the cattle um, futures are going to manage themselves? Well, I tell you, if, if I could figure that one out, I'd be sitting in the <laughs> Chicago market and I'd sell my house and dogs and I'd be playing the game. It is so hard. But I, yeah. I think that one of the greatest impacts was everything that came out of left field with the ethanol programs. I mean, uh-huh. let's face it, uh, ethanol started in this country with corn because America is a corn-dominated uh, agriculture system. Right. I mean, the, you know, you, you have the reality that using corn to create ethanol is extremely inefficient. Yes. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden by decree, uh, you know, one has to use it. And, uh, you know, there, you have everybody thinking, well, you know, we've got a secretary of ethanol, not a secretary of agriculture. So where's the even play going to come from the use of grains in this country? Um, but I, I don't know. I don't think the – I mean, I think what they're talking about with the subsidies is going more towards uh, insurance and crop disaster type things rather than mm-hmm. in the grain up front. Uh, and that will change. But, you know, subsidies – are going to change everywhere in the world. I mean, I can remember 
doing a speech in East Germany uh, where they were uh, talking about subsidies. And they said the only thing they didn't like about subsidies was they wanted more of it. And I kept t- telling people subsidy is nothing more than a tax on people not in your business so you can pretend that you're efficient. Yeah, and I think that that actually, that uh, charge has been leveled a great deal at the cattle industry tour to a certain extent, just because, I mean, up until the last couple of years, corn prices were um, relatively low, of course, in the subsequent years with the competition with ethanol, as well as the terrible climate disruptions we've had um, with drought and various other things that have impacted the corn crop. Um, I think people said the same thing about beef, that it was, you know, artificially low because they weren't paying the real cost of corn. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. Probably well, not. But too the high. real the real cost of corn is what the real market is going to pay for it. Right. And well, if the real market right. says it's going to go somewhere else, then then in order for cattle to get access to grain, it's going to have to pay for it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now I don't want you to go anywhere. You stay right there, Mr. Baxter. Um, and Joe is going to play a thirty-second commercial drop for us, and we'll be right back on Straight No yeah. Chaser with Raul Baxter from the cattle industry. Listening to Oh My God by Peacemaker Bomb. White Oak Pastures is a 146-year-old, multi-generational family farm that works in cooperation with nature to produce artisan meat that is safe, healthy, nutritious, and good to eat. Without fail, we ensure that our production practices are economically practical, ecologically sustainable, and that the animals are always humanely treated. We never falter in our determination to conduct our business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. Welcome back to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And on the line with me is Raul Baxter, who is the uh, principal at the RJB um, Worldwide Consulting Group. He's an industry expert on the cattle industry, and I'm really I'm delighted to have him on to help us tease out some of the issues that surround um, you know, mainstream uh, commercial livestock and livestock production. So um, thanks again, Raul, for joining me today. Oh, by the way, I didn't ask you how you got that name. How is it, Raoul Baxter? It, uh, it actually is a very common name in France. My twin brother and I were born in Vienna, Austria, ah. and the doctor, the doctor who delivered us was named Raoul. And uh, my name has been screwed up ever since I was born. I can imagine. Yeah, it's not something you see a lot. I actually always think of it more of as a as a Latin name or or from Spain. But well, you know, it's, it, it, it's the it. French equivalent of Raoul. I mean, 
I personally have only met one other person in America named Raul, and I went to high school with him in Sarasota, Florida. Oh, interesting. Incredible. Anyway, let's go back to, um, we're in our second segment and fast running out of time. So one of the things that I know consumers have been very um, concerned about is livestock, uh, you, the use of antibiotics in livestock and feed in general, and particularly in cattle feed. And I wondered, um, what kind of an impact would it have on the length of time it would take to raise an animal if you didn't use uh, antibiotics as a growth promotant? What kind of impact economically will that have on the industry, do you think? Well, I I think first there's antibiotics, there's injectables, there's the Mm -hmm. hormones and the growth promotants that actually, you know, allow the animal to get more uh, lean meat or to grow faster, which kind of three different categories. Well, I think uh, I think it's going to, I think it, it will have a big difference. A big impact on the profit margins. Yes. I would think so. How much longer do you anticipate it will take? Okay, say it takes, what, about 13 months for a cattle to come to market weight now. Is that right? 13 to 16? Uh, you know, depending upon the avenue that that calf followed. But, mm-hmm. but certainly, you know, if, if you went straight from cow-calf into a feedlot, it'd be mm-hmm. about 14, 15 months. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so um, if they were not uh, using, because right now what's happened, I went to a, um, a conference recently in D.C., and there was a panel about this. So um, I heard the FDA talking about the voluntary guidelines that they have uh, you know, started to impose. I shouldn't say impose because they are voluntary guidelines in which um, the livestock industry would phase antibiotic use out of feed, just regular feed, subtherapeutic antibiotic use, because it's there where the dose is lower and the animal ingests more of it over its lifespan that the antibiotic-resistant strains are beginning to um, really emerge from that practice. So um, I'm, think, I'm talking about, so where, how much more time are we looking at? So from 14 months, would it go to 24 months? I, I don't think it would be uh, that would be that long, mm-hmm. and I, I think uh, you know you really begin to affect the length of time it takes to get an animal ready by how much and, and when the growth promotants are used, the hor- i.e., the hormones. Uh-huh. And, and uh, that's as much a political issue as mm-hmm. as what they do themselves. Right. So where where the hormones are a totally separate issue about which I know almost nothing. I just do know that they use antibiotics a lot to help push growth along. Where else besides in feed and treating livestock that are sick, obviously you want them to be treated, um, where else do they use them? It seems like it's it's kind of ubiquitous in, in agriculture. I mean, I know, for instance, they treat um, th- when they're making ethanol. There's Anti, there's antibiotics in the ethanol mix to keep the growth of bacteria down while it's fermenting. And then the distiller's mash ends up having antibiotics in it. Is that, is that another place where it's going to be phased out, do you think? I, I, you know, I think right now it's, it's a giant soup, and there's so many things in it, it's hard to pull out and separate out what may or may not happen. But I, I think with cattle in general, the use of antibiotics as, as growth promotants and in feed all the time is, is, is really not as common as, uh, as with the other species. Is that right? And I think that, uh, you know, where you have the use is really the injectables when you have to, which is when the, uh, the calves are weaned and, and they, 
then are put in groups and they go off to uh, somebody else who feeds them over the winter. Right. Uh, anytime you mix different animals together, you know, you're going to be challenged. I mean, there's a, a great series on uh, the Animal Channel called The Last Cowboy about three uh, Montana cattle ranchers. They're fat, just family ranchers, different sizes, mm-hmm. and the challenges that they go through facing just out-and-out diseases. And <clears throat> when people talk about these things, I mean, how many humans do you know that have never had a shot or never had aspirin? And I think the question really becomes, all right, how do you use them to get the best effect? How do you use them so that they're not abused? Well, that is the big question, especially when it's um, when we're talking about voluntary guidelines. Because, of course, for anybody who's in the business, um, they you know they can see their their slim profit margin going down the toilet when they have to feed an animal three or four months longer than they normally would were they allowed to use antibiotics as they have been. But the fact is, is that since 1977. Um, the FDA has been, you know, making feeble attempts at getting antibiotic use under some kind of uh, stricter control. Because as you know very well, veterinarians are not always called in um, unless the animal is sick. They have what's called off-label usage. And I think that's the um, the, the area where the, the rancher or the cattleman himself is making decisions about how much antibiotic to include in his animal's diet or on a regular dosing basis. I mean, the guy who sponsored this program today, for example, I don't know if you could hear the ad, will Harris has a vertically integrated uh, cattle ranch down in Georgia, does not have to use any, any antibiotics. Doesn't. That's part of his, you know, I mean, that's part of his particular growing protocol. So clearly it can be done, but it can't be done when you talk about the kind of scale of agriculture that you're accustomed to working in. And I guess the big question um, for most consumers is how, you know, how will the cattle industry balance that need to maintain a profit margin, which we all know is really tough in agriculture, no matter what sector, and maintain public health at the same time by not overusing antibiotics to the point where they, we see what we're seeing now, where we have, uh, you know, lots of antibiotic resistant uh, salmonellas and other, and clostridium and other diseases that are coming forth. Um, so what, what's your best analysis of that? How are they going to succeed in, in balancing those two um, twin goals, as we, I guess we could say? Well, I, I think they, they need some environment that is almost adversarial, where you have, almost like our legal system, where you have a plaintiff and defensive lawyer go at it, arguing both sides of, of a similar issue mm-hmm. to get the real facts out, because I don't think a lot of these facts are objective. I think that uh, good management, uh, the, the better the management, the less anybody has to use drugs. And frankly, right. the goal of good livestock people is not to use drugs, because drugs are very, very expensive. Yeah. And uh, I think what will happen and what should happen, particularly with cattle, is that uh, people will begin to measure more things, will be, uh, begin to keep much better records and see what they do. Uh, some people tend to do things based on a historical perspective, what used to work in the past. Mm -hmm. And there are other avenues, and one has to look at the best of the class type situation where good people maybe are not using them and getting good results. So one has to be very open. If you're operating in a closed mind, you're dead in the water anyway. But I think that this is a a very, very difficult situation. Yeah, I see it as a really tough problem to solve. I mean, uh, naturally, as a consumer, I feel concerned about, um, you know, the medicines that we use to control disease in humans being, um, you know, becoming increasingly less effective. Um, That's very disturbing. But also, who wants to see food? 
food prices skyrocket because for whatever reason we have to change the model, um, which I think is eventually what's going to have to happen to tell you the truth. But um, we only have a couple of minutes left and you made a comment when we were first setting up this interview about how contentious the cattle industry is. And I wondered if you would mind expanding a little bit about that because, I mean, as we've just discussed, here are three big issues. Um, You know, the antibiotic use, uh, we didn't even touch on GMO labeling and using GMO crops, but um, changing up the model for how cattle are fed or raised. Where, you know, do you have within the cattle industry, there's probably a lot of different factions. I know you have RCAF, all those guys, they've got a whole different point of view. So can you talk a little bit about how the cattle industry manages itself? And um, of course, it isn't exactly transparent, is it? Well, in some ways, it manages to survive despite itself. I mean, uh, you know, as you go out in the world, one of the greatest challenges in doing business is trying to communicate in some type of language. And here we are in the cattle industry, and we have all different kinds of words and languages being used, and a lot of people having no clue what another segment does, what's important to them, why it's important, and, you know, some of these groups just live and die with conspiracies. They get it locked into some kind of nonsense, and they just cannot change. But I think that, in all fairness, one, uh, you know, if you're, in, particularly in the livestock industry, it's not a passive occupation. You have got to be aggressive in understanding what goes on and what takes place and other things. And if you sell, for example, to a packer, making sure that you know exactly what they're buying, why they're buying, how they're buying it. That's what they owe to you. But from the time that you have all these different breeds and you have uh, uh, people of different sizes, different locations, the calves after they're weaned going different uh, avenues, um, you have, uh, you know, you have order buyers, you have uh, people who are taking possession in different ways. I mean, look at the the disaster that's still trying to be sorted out with this Eastern Livestock Group. Um, one has to be able to have some understanding of, of ultimately how these things work. And I don't think there's much business for seeing eye cows and uh, and... <laughs> And, uh, and watch cows. I mean, ultimately the purpose is, is high-quality meat. And if that's the, the ultimate goal, then one has to figure out how best one can do that. Well, I think how best one can do that and at the same time balance the issues around, um, you know, how much arable cropland there is. What are they eating? The fact that we may face some serious water shortages in the coming years. Um, those are just a few of the things that I think need to be thought about, perhaps a little bit in advance. And um, I was just curious to to know if, if, you know, to go back to sort of my first question about whether or not there are other models being projected towards how we raise cattle in this country, given that it it is a big part of our, um, you know, gross domestic product um, that we do make money on it in the in the uh, in the commodities market and also internationally. I mean, there there has to be some forethought about how to manage some of these big issues around feeding and medication um, that will take us into the next you know couple of decades of profitability. And uh, I just wondered where you're, where you were as a consultant and analyst for the industry, what you think is going to happen. Well, I think that um, you're going to have a narrowing down of, uh, of some of the cattle breeds as you had in uh, pigs and chickens and turkeys. 
But is that a good thing? Animals that can truly uh, uh, produce economic animals. And when I say economic animals, animals that uh, are healthy, that have uh, gains, that that do well on the farm, but also ultimately do well uh, in producing meat. Yeah, but then Uh, don't you also run the risk of of sort of that, you know, monocropping impact or or like in in the pork business, they bred all these white pigs and then the pigs, A, are mean as hell and secondly, they're too lean and nobody wants to eat them. I mean, I heard somebody in the pork industry tell me that was the worst mistake they ever made was was monocropping those pigs, bringing them down to just using one or two breeds. So I, I see there's a certain amount of danger in that as well. You well, don't see that? I, yeah, I'm not talking about monocropping. Um, but, you know, um, every breed has got to have a reason for its existence. Mm-hmm. And I think that with pigs, I mean, let's face it, what, what happened was that uh, everybody in America went on this lean kick. Yeah. And you had consumer groups, and then you had all the livestock groups, and you had the livestock associations say, hey, we've got to do lean, lean, lean. So... Uh, all of a sudden, all the systems were changed. All the emphasis on breeding was put on uh, creating a very, very lean animal. And then, lo and behold, you had all these other issues that popped up. And yeah. when you make those changes, I mean, you don't correct them in a year or two. Understood. And, you know, whether they're white or green, I mean, let's face it, they they became white because that's the easiest uh, type of hair. Same thing with turkeys and chickens, they're all white, not because they're Colonel Sanders' favorite color, but it's the easiest to process. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Unfortunately, sadly, I have to let you go. Um, and I deeply regret that because I really, there's so much more here. I do hope you'll come back and be another a guest another time, Raul. It's really been enjoyable to chat with you. Most informative, sure. sir. So, um, well, I wish you a very happy Father's Day, and thanks for you taking the time today. And folks, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week with another fantastically interesting industry insider. And uh, thanks to my sponsor, Will Harris of White Oak Pastures, and thanks to Joe, my engineer. And uh, that's been it. That's it for Straight No Chaser. So long. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.